Bibles, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 7, and we're going to continue our study through Genesis. Today we're going to be looking at the story of the flood in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, and um, let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing and ask for his spirit to be here and give us revelation and insight. Lord, we've gathered here in your name. We gather in the name of the triune God, Lord, and we thank you that your presence is here amongst us, Lord. We thank you for the promise of your presence. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we ask for the spirit of a wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. And Lord, we just ask that your spirit would be here, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would convict us, that you'd challenge us, that you'd encourage us, you'd comfort us, Lord, and give us your heart. Lord, as we study your word, as your spirit works within us this morning, Lord, give us your heart. Help us to see the way that you see. Help us to feel the way that you feel, Lord. That we could be like you, that we could be your hands and feet in this world for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So on Sundays, as you know, we're studying through the book of Genesis. We at this church believe that every part of the scripture is very important and was very intentionally put there by God. So therefore we study the scriptures. We try not to leave anything out and we try to let the scriptures speak for themselves. We let God teach us what he wants to through his scriptures. So what we've seen over the past few weeks as we've been studying through the first few chapters of Genesis is that at this point, Over 1,600 years of human history has taken place. People have multiplied on the earth, but as the population has increased, the problem of sin, which entered the world, has increased as well. It's also multiplied as the population has multiplied. The more people that were on the earth, the more sinners there were on the earth, and the more sin took place. And, and we read one of the most poignant verses in the entire Bible last week. And we talked about this idea of the pain of God. The pain and distress that God feels as a result of human sin because of how intensely he loves us. And how much he has tied and bound his heart to us. So, so here we are at this point that God has decided that he has no choice but to judge the violence and evil of mankind, and he's going to do that with a flood. He's chosen a man, Noah. We read about him that he is the only man in his generation at this point who walks with God. And he's chosen, God's chosen Noah to warn the people, to call them to repentance, and to build this great boat, the ark, which is going to be the vehicle of salvation. The vehicle of salvation. If anyone is inside the ark, they will be saved from the judgment of the flood. For those who are not in the ark, they're going to perish. Uh, We we read that it took Noah 120 years to build this ark. And during the time that he built it, we read that he was a herald, a preacher of righteousness. He told people what God had spoken to him. And he told them what was going to happen. And he told them how they could be saved from this judgment. He said, repent, change your ways, walk with the Lord and join me on the ark. He said, there's room for you on this ark. But no one heeded that message, except for his immediate family. As we talked about last week, he was a preacher, but he only had like seven people in his church and they all had the same last name, you know? And uh, an interesting thing about this ark is how big it really was. I mean, this was massive. This would be like a modern day barge. Um, We read the dimensions of it in our text last week, but it's really kind of difficult to fathom just how 
gigantic this thing really was. In recent years, in, uh, in three different places around the world, full-size replicas of the Ark have been built. And it takes them a lot less than 120 years because, you know, modern machinery. But they're, they're really big. The first was built in Hong Kong, and it was for the purpose of an amusement park, but it is a full-scale replica of the Ark there in Hong Kong. The second one was built by a creationist in the Netherlands, and, uh, and also, again, a, a, a full-scale Ark. And the third one is still being built by the organization who some of you may know, Answers in Genesis, and they're building it in Kentucky. Uh, I personally think that the one in the Netherlands is the most interesting. Uh, I posted a link about it on the city. If you're on the city, then check that out. But the guy who built it, he did it to show people that the, the story of Noah's Ark is very much plausible historically. He's trying to show that this ark was huge and that it did float. And, uh, and on his ark that he's built, this replica, he's built rooms for the animals. He's even got one section that's an aviary for flying birds, which I think is really cool. So Noah's ark would have been about 1.4 million cubic feet. That's a bit bigger than my house. Uh, it's 1.4 million cubic feet. It's humongous, right? That's huge. That's the size of about 550 modern-day railroad cars. That's a lot. So that's a lot of space. And what that means is that there was not only room on the ark for the animals, but there was room to spare. And I think that's an important detail, that there was room to spare. And I'll tell you why. Because we must see, we must hear the message of the story of Noah's Ark. And the message of the story is this, that the days that Noah lived in are very strikingly similar to the days that we live in. You remember that Jesus said that just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So just as God judged sin in the days of Noah, so too God is coming again to judge sin, human sin on the earth once again. Uh, as, as God sent Noah to warn the people and tell them that, that God had provided a way to be saved, a vehicle of salvation, and that there was room inside for them too if they would just repent and come. In the same way, God has provided today a vehicle of salvation. From the ultimate judgment to come, that vehicle of salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and there is room for all who desire to come. Just as in the days of Noah, many, though, will disregard the warning. They will disregard the loving provision of God. That offer to be saved from the righteous judgment of God upon sin. And they will live their lives apart from God. They will ignore the call of the Holy Spirit to repent and receive the gift of God, of gift of God's grace, and be saved. And at one point, time will run out. And the door to the ark will be closed. And that's a frightening thing. It's a, it's a very somber, very uh, serious, sober thing. And the thing I want you to see as we read about the flood this week, because that's essentially what we're getting at here in the story, is that time has run out. The door to the ark is closing. And as we read this, what I want you to see is this, that this story is both historical and prophetic. This is not just the story of what happened at one time, but it is the story of what happens every single day. And it is the story of what will happen at one point in the future. And my hope and my prayer is that as we study this section, that our hearts would be filled with compassion for those people around us. And that, and that we would be filled with a sense of the urgency 
of the gospel. So what we're going to do, how we're going to do this, we're going to work our way through the text, and then at the end, I'm going to come back and I'm going to make three, uh, highlight three principles from the text, but first we're just going to work our way through it. So join me with, uh, join with me in reading from uh, Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will reign on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Try to put yourself in Noah's shoes right now. Just try to imagine what it must have been like to be Noah at this point of his life. Try to feel the things that Noah felt at this point. Noah has been building this ark for 120 years. If you do the math, what you find out is that Noah started working on this ark 20 years before his first son was born. What that means is that as his kids are growing up, as long as they can remember, their dad has been building this boat. And you got to imagine that as they're growing up, you know, they're getting three, four years old, they begin to become very inquisitive and they want to know what's going on. And they would surely come up to Noah and they would say, you know, dad, what are you doing? You know? Uh, And he'd say, well, son, I'm building this boat. And dad, why are you building that boat? Well, son, because God's going to judge the sin of the world and but but he's made a way for us to be saved and we have to obey him and build this boat. Well, why, dad? Well, because God loves us, son. You can imagine the conversations that he would have had with his kids. Because God's gracious to us, son, because God has provided a way for us to be saved. Well, dad, why isn't anybody else building the boat? Why do, are they going to come join us on our boat? Well, son, I I've invited them to join us, but I I've told them what's going to happen, but they don't care. Well, why don't they care, Dad? How could they not care? You know, well, well, son, they don't walk with God like your mom and I do. They don't care about God. You know, I remember when my wife one time told my, my son, Nathaniel, that there are people in the world who do not love God. He was just like shocked. Like, what? Like, he didn't get it. He was like confused. Why don't they love God? What's their problem? Why would they not obey God? You know? But, but again, put yourself in Noah's shoes. God speaks to him and tells him to build this boat, and he gives him the specifications. Then Noah builds this boat for 120 years, and then God speaks to him again. We don't really have any indication that God spoke to Noah during that time. And sometimes that's how it is. If God speaks to you, sometimes he doesn't speak to you again until you've already followed through on what he spoke to you the first time. So God speaks to Noah once again at the end of the 120 years. And he says, seven more days and the flood will come. Now what do you think is going through Noah's heart and Noah's mind at this point? Try to feel the emotion. When we moved away from Hungary, my wife and I, you know, we had a lot of friends who were not believers. And we realized that time was running out. And maybe we were never going to see some of these people again. So we made sure that we would share the gospel with them. You know, lest that, lest that we would have had the words of eternal life, yet we would have remained silent. No, we said we can't do that. 
There's an urgency here. And I can't help but imagine that Noah had a sense of urgency during those last seven days before the flood. I can't help but think that he must have tried to reach out at least one last time to his friends, his neighbors, the people he had shared with who had disregarded his message one last time because he knew that time was running out. But as it always does, eventually time did run out. Let's read from verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and on that day all the fountains of the deep, of the great deep, burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to all its kind. And every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Notice verse 11, it says that in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day, that's when all this happened. Now that's very specific. We are not looking, what we're dealing with here is not meant to be read as an allegory. It's not meant to be read as a fable. This is meant to be, this is given forth as a historical account of what happened. But picture the scene. Here's what's happened. Time has run out. The seven days are up. And now it's time to get in the ark. No, you know, God has brought all the animals to Noah. Noah has put them in their places on the ark. And Noah, you know, he must be thinking, you know, this is really happening. This is getting real. And, and then Noah stands at the door of the ark and he looks out on this city that he loves. Yes, it's a city full of sinners. It's a city full of evil and wickedness. That's true. But it's also a city which is full of Noah's neighbors which is full of Noah's relatives, which is full of Noah's friends. And you have to see that to understand this, what's really going on. He looks out in the city. What does he see? He sees the smoke coming out of the chimneys from the people cooking their meals. He sees the women going to gather water. He sees the men going out to work in the field. He sees the children playing outside of the houses. And then he sees the clouds begin to gather on the horizon. And he hears the rumble of the thunder. And as it gets closer, eventually he feels that first raindrop fall on his head. And then another, and then another, and then it begins to rain. And then we read that God shut him in. And I think that's very significant for multiple reasons, but I think one possible reason, as I try to imagine this story, is that I imagine that Noah at this point probably could not bring himself to shut that door. It was probably too much. Time has run out. Judgment has come. It is no longer possible for anyone else to get into the ark and be saved. And I want you to stand there with Noah, and I want you to look out on your city, I want you to look out on your neighborhood, 
on your neighbors, on your relatives, on your friends, on people who do not know the Lord. And I want you to allow your heart to break. Allow your heart to break as Noah's heart broke. And feel those raindrops hitting you in the head. And you and I, we are no better than those people who live in the neighborhoods that we live in who don't know the Lord. The only difference between Noah and those people and us and the people in our neighborhoods is that we have put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not by our merits. We put our faith in his merits, in his grace. We've accepted the invitation to enter the ark. We have not disregarded it. And someday the day will come when the door will shut. When God himself will shut the door and he will say to people, I sent you preachers. I sent you examples to follow. I offered you salvation, but you disregarded it. And now it's too late. And now the door is shut. And I want you to stand there with Noah at this point. The door has shut. It's probably very dark inside that cavernous ark. And as the rain becomes a torrent, uh, as the fountains of the deep open up, you've got to imagine that the echo inside of that ark, it must have been very terrible. It must have been a terrible sound. The animals must have been frightened. You can imagine the women and children must have been scared, huddled together, crying. And of course, the sound of those who ran to the ark and pounded on the door, wanting to get in, it must have been very, extremely disheartening, disturbing, sad. And perhaps the worst sound must have been the deafening silence that came as the floodwaters rose and finally the voices outside and the cries for help stopped. Let's read on from verse 17. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. I can imagine that those who could, the young men, those who were healthy, they would have tried to climb the mountains for safety. They would have tried to get to higher ground. You know, those nearby mountains, when we're talking about the mountains in that area, that's the mountains of Ararat, they reach up to 17,000 feet, some of those peaks. You know, as the floodwaters rose, as they kept trying to climb, eventually they couldn't climb any higher, and they got swept away. You know, the mountains were covered by 15 cubits of water. That's 22 feet, roughly. That was covering the highest mountains. I mean, the highest mountain in that area, like I said, 17,000 feet. Can you imagine the day when Long's Peak just disappears underwater? When there is no Rocky Mountains to look at to the west because they're underwater. Verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And the water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. 
The judgment is complete. Everything is dead except that which is on the ark. Now, this is a profoundly, deeply disturbing text. A few weeks ago, remember, we studied Genesis 5, uh, the genealogy. And I asked you what emotion that genealogy generated within you. What did it evoke within you? And I encourage you to embrace that emotion of boredom because it feels like you're reading the phone book, right? But really, that's, that's actually, that emotion is key to understanding the text. Well, here in Genesis chapter 7, I encourage you to embrace the emotion that this text evokes in you as well. I don't know about you, but personally, when I read this, I find it deeply disheartening, deeply disturbing. And, and as I try to put myself in Noah's shoes and grasp what happened on this day that God judged the world for sin, if, if that's what it makes you feel, if it makes you feel disturbed, then I encourage you to embrace that. Because that means that you have understood the weight of the gravity of this text. Because here's the deal. As I said before, this story is both historical and it is prophetic. This is the story of what happened. It is the story of what happens every single day. And it is the story of what is going to happen at some point in the future. You know, every day, people die. The wages of sin is death. And every single day, people stand before God and are judged for sin. For those people, the door of the ark is shut. Time has run out. They're either inside the ark or they're outside of it. There's no more opportunity to decide. The door has shut. And that's a very sobering reality, is it not? I find it very sobering. The reality is, that the, the reason we have to look at this is not only because, because it is the reality, it is the truth of the situation, but also because when we understand the fa- this fact, right, when we begin to have the heart of Noah, when we begin to look out on our city and see what Noah saw, people going about their lives, not realizing what's about to happen, and Noah's heart was broken, you know, he wasn't just content that he had a place in the ark. He wasn't just happy that, hey, well, I got my place on the ark. That's good enough for me. He wanted others to be in that ark as well. And that's why he became a preacher of righteousness. That's why he called people to repentance and invited them to walk with God and join him on the ark. And that is what happens to you and I when we grasp the weight and the gravity of what this story says. That it is a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment which is going to come upon the earth because of sin. And just as God provided a vehicle of salvation at that time, he has provided one in our time too. In Jesus Christ. You know, when you really grasp the gravity of the situation, you can't just be content that you have a place on the ark, but you have to. It it causes you to say, I want others to be on the ark too. This text should disturb us, but it doesn't disturb us just for the sake of disturbing us. Its purpose in being disturbing is that our hearts would be filled with compassion for those around us, and with a sense of the urgency of the gospel. So let this text sink in, and let it just work these two things out in your heart. The good news about this text is this, that for everyone who has the breath of life in their lungs today, the door is still open. And that is good news. 
We see what it's like when the door closes, but the good news for us is that the door is still open. The door is still open for people to receive God's grace and enter in by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and be saved from the wrath to come, to receive forgiveness and eternal life and abundant life here and now. So let's continue on in verse 8, or in chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were there with him on the ark. Here's the first hopeful thing we read. This is really the turning point in the story. God remembers Noah. And whenever the Bible says that God remembers somebody, it refers to, uh, to God, rem- it, refer- it means that God is about to do something. God is about to act on the behalf for the welfare of this person. So verses 1 from the second part. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. I want you to notice this. It took only 40 days for the flood to destroy the earth completely. But in totality, Noah and his family and the animals are going to be on this ark for 371 days. Over a year. You know what that tells us? It tells us that destruction comes very quickly. But restoration, redemption, and renewal take a lot of time. And I I think that probably some of you know that very well. Some of you have experienced that in your own life. Some of you may be still experiencing that at this point. Destruction happens very quickly. But restoration, redemption, and renewal take time. You know, some of you have experienced in relationships this, this dynamic. Trust can be lost in a moment. In just single action, trust can be lost. And it takes a long time to gain it back. I've known people who in a, in a moment of weakness and foolishness did something dumb, they committed a crime, and their life, the course of their life was changed forever. But the good news, the hopeful news of the gospel is that God is faithful and he is dedicated to restoring and redeeming and renewing every aspect of your life that has been messed up by sin and folly. But the thing that you and I have to understand is that most of the time, it's not going to happen instantly. It's a long road. It's a marathon. But it's worth it. And, And God is faithful to do a work of restoration and redemption and renewal in every area of your life that's been messed up by sin if you will walk with him down that path. Verses 6, verse 6 through 12. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. See how gentle Noah has become. I believe that his character was formed during this year on the ark. 
He waited another seven days and again sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Noah has not only become a gentleman, he's become a patient man. I'm trying to show you that God is forming Noah's character as he's spending a year with him on this boat in this ark. You know, if it was me, I'd be like compulsive. I'd be like sending a dove out like every five minutes, you know, to see. But Noah just, he's cool. He waits a week, another week. He's patient. God is forming his character. Let's continue on from verse 13. In the six hundredth and first year, in the fifth or in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Notice that... from the time that Noah sees that the ground has dried up he, th- till the time that he actually gets the okay from God to exit the ark, almost two months go by. Now you've got to believe that these people wanted nothing more than to get off this ark as soon as possible. Think about this. They've been riding around with their in-laws for a year with a bunch of seasick animals. Okay, They want to get off this ark. But what they've learned over the course of a year of being on this ark with the Lord is that the best thing they can do is to just let God direct them and lead them, not get ahead of him. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What we see is, Man has not changed. Sin went into the ark. Sin came off of the ark. The man's heart is, the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. The only thing that's changed here is God's heart. And we'll talk about why in a second. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Okay, Noah has this whole earth to repopulate. He has a lot to do. He's got a long to-do list. He's got to build some shelters. He's got stuff to do. He's got to get to work. But notice, what's the first thing he does upon exiting the ark? He makes an altar. He makes a sacrifice. And he praises the Lord and worships God. That is his first priority. And what an amazing example that is for Noah's sons and daughters to see, for his wife to see. What an amazing example it is for us to see. And we see that the Lord's heart was moved by this sacrifice, that it pleased him. So now, like I said, now that we've gone through the text, I want to go back and I want to break it down in in another way by highlighting three important principles that this story teaches us. And those three principles are these. Number one, the voice of nature. Number two, the faithfulness of God in the storm. And number three, the response of Noah. So let's start with this, the voice of nature. One of the most poignant aspects of this story is 
Who obeys God? Look at this. Over and over, this is, really sticks out, right? That Noah obeyed God and everything that God commanded him. We also read that the animals obeyed God. God called the animals to come and the animals obeyed. And you know what else obeys God is nature, the natural forces. The only thing that doesn't obey God is the people. Isn't that true of our experience as well? You know, some people really don't like to talk about the, the topic of obedience to God. They're like, obedience to God, man, it's bleh. Let's talk about, let's talk about how much God wants to bless me again. Uh, but I don't want to talk about obedience to God because it makes him seem like such a control freak, such an overlord. But here's the deal. I want you to look at the things in which that God commanded Noah to do. I want you to look at the things in which Noah obeyed God and I want you to see this. In everything that God instructed Noah to do, to obey him, it was all only because God loved Noah and because God's commands to Noah were actually God's grace to Noah and they were for the purpose of saving him and protecting him and his family. Do you see that? You know why God gives us commands? It's only because God loves us. It's because God wants to lead us in what he calls the way everlasting. That is the way that leads to abundant, joyful, and eventually everlasting life. And look at this. There's something that we can all afford to learn from observing nature. Did you know that nature has a voice? That's what it says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And it says that the voice of nature goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Nature has a voice. Nature proclaims the glory of God. It proclaims the power of God. It proclaims so much about God's nature. It's reflected. His nature is reflected in, in nature. And in this chapter, we see that God has displayed his power and his might in the water, for example. You know, nature also was affected by the curse of sin. But it's fallen in a way that we are not. You know, when, I, when, I, when we look at nature, and we look at the ocean, and when we look at the stars, when we look at rivers, we have to say, you are being obedient to God in a way that I am not. C.S. Lewis said this about nature in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, we all want something which we can hardly put into words. We want to be united with the beauty uh, that we see in nature. We want to bathe in it. We want to become part of it. Ah, but the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that, God willing, we will get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then we will put on the glory of which nature is now only the first sketch. That's profound, eh? The point is this. There's something we can afford to learn from nature. Nature is God's creation. We are also God's creation. And we look at nature and we say, I hope to catch up to you someday. I hope to become as obedient to my master as you are. Romans 8 says this about creation. It says, Creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the, birth, or in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. What that is saying is that creation is waiting on tiptoes with bated breath for us to catch up. 
waiting for our redemption, that we might become free from sin completely, and when we will fully realize and become who God created us to be. Elizabeth Elliot said this, A clam glorifies God more than you do, because the clam is being the clam that God made it to be, but you are not being the man or the woman that God made you to be. The promise of the gospel, however, is this. It says this in Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And check this out. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What that means is that the gospel is not only that you will be saved from judgment, against sin by being justified in Christ, but it also means that you will be glorified, that you will be made into the person that God intended you to be, that God created you to be before sin came and messed a bunch of stuff up, and that you will glorify him as part of his redeemed creation that moves and sways together with him, no longer in autonomy from him, separated from him, doing your own destructive thing, but in perfect harmony with him, in perfect unity and obedience. That is the amazing, incredible promise and hope of the gospel. Just try to wrap your head around it. It's amazing. So, so let us see Noah. He was obedient to God. Let us hear the voice of creation. Let us be people who are obedient to God because every word that God speaks, whether a word of correction, whether a word of instruction or encouragement, he speaks it only out of his unfathomable love that he has for you. Secondly, the faithfulness of God in the midst of the storm. We often think of God's covenant with Noah being the one which comes in chapter 9 with the rainbow. But there was another covenant that God made with Noah back in chapter 6, verse 18. And it was essentially this. It was an agreement that if Noah would build this ark, as God told him, that God would save Noah and his family from the flood. And God remained faithful to that covenant that he made with Noah. God brought him through the storm, brought him out on the other side, just as he promised to do. That's part of the significance of what we read about God shutting him in the ark. God made sure that he would be carried through to the other side. You know, the number 40 in the Bible is often related to trials and sufferings. Jesus was, his faith was tested for 40 days in the wilderness. The nation of Israel walked for, or wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. So this 40 days as the rain fell, this is intentionally a picture of trials and sufferings. It's a storm, which in the Bible also is a picture of trials and suffering. Uh, but, but God brought them through. Not only did he put them on the ark, but he brought them through and brought them on, out on the other side. In my experience, and perhaps yours as well, is that in the midst of the trial, I, I experience the, the presence of the Lord. I experience the faithfulness of the Lord in a much more tangible way. You know, and the, the Lord uses trials in our lives in order to form us. Romans 5 says that God uses trials in our lives for the purpose of forming our character, to make us into the people that he wants us to be. Noah is a man who's gone through a year-long trial, but he's gone through it with the Lord, and he comes out on the other side, a man who is gentle, a man who is patient, and a man who his every desire is to worship the Lord. That is the first thing he wants to do. 
For those of you who are in the midst of a storm, let me encourage you with this. The storm is not God's wrath upon you. Why? Because the wrath of God, God's complete wrath, fell upon Jesus Christ. Therefore, any trial that comes into your life, it's allowed by the Lord, but it's allowed for the benefit of building you up, for forming your character, for directing you. And there's comfort in that. There's the faithfulness of God in the storm. You know, God knows some of us so well, and I'll tell you what, he loves each of us more than we can imagine. And I'll tell you what, God knows me well enough, and he knows you well enough that he knows that sometimes we won't be people who stay on our knees. We won't be people who seek him in the same way if there's not some difficulty, some stress in our life. So he'll allow it because he knows our form, that we're frail, and he knows that that's what we need in order to be people who remain dependent on him. I want you to see that even in the midst of the storm, God is faithful and God is good. He's causing all things to work together for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And finally, we'll wrap up with this, the response of Noah. How do you respond to the grace of God in your life? How do you respond to the faithfulness of God in your life? Here's how Noah responded. He responded by being obedient and by worshiping the Lord. The first thing Noah does when he gets out of the ark, before he does anything else, he builds an altar with his hands and he worships the Lord. He makes a sacrifice which probably took him at least an entire day. I mean, that's a lot of work what he did. It wasn't pragmatic, it wasn't practical, but it was Noah's priority. It was his response to that God had saved him and been faithful to him. And it pleased the heart of the Lord. Remember last week we talked about how God's heart was moved by the sin of the people, but it was moved to pain. It was distressed. Well, here what we see is that, again, God's heart is moved by the sacrifice of worship, and it pleases the Lord. You know what the difference is between a religious person and a true Christian? It's this, that the, tr- the religious person finds God useful. But a person who's really come to know the grace of God, they find God beautiful. Look at Noah. He's come through this. He's obeyed God. He's walked with God. And he's not giving this sacrifice because it's useful. He's giving this sacrifice as a response to God because God has been wonderful to him. Religious people find God useful. People who have understood God's grace find him beautiful. And then that becomes the dynamic of your entire life. Everything you do becomes a heartfelt response to the grace of God. You're not obeying God to get things from God. You're not doing things for God because you hope to earn something through it. Your heart is just overwhelmed by his beauty, by his grace, by his faithfulness that he shows you even in the midst of the storm. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. And I encourage you, as we sing this last song, let's make this a response of worship, a response to his grace and a response to his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness in our life. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you that not by our merits, Lord, do you judge us, but you judge us on the merits of Christ, Lord. You see us in him. Lord, thank you that he took all of the judgment, all of the punishment that would have rightly fallen upon us. But Lord, thank you that we can be hidden in him, that we can find life in him. 
So Lord, today we just want to be like Noah and we want to respond to your grace in our life. We want to respond to your faithfulness in our, in our lives. We want to respond in worship. We want to respond in obedience, Lord. And we pray that that would continue even as we leave this place and carry on throughout our week, throughout our month. And Lord, by your grace for the rest of our life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.